welcome back to the Scottish Garden Podcast. It's series two at last, and to kick things off, we have a really interesting chat with the gardening guru that is Ken Cox from Glendowick Garden Centre. We discuss many of the horticultural hot topics of the day, including chemicals and peat, plastic pots, and how large retailers are squeezing small independent nurseries. Welcome to the Scottish Garden Podcast. with Ken Cox in September this year 2019 in the busy cafe at Glendowick Garden Centre which is between Perth and Dundee. In the past few months the centre has undergone some renovation including extending its eating facilities and adding a new kids play area but it's really the addition of solar panels and electric vehicle charging points which really upped its eco credentials recently and prompted me to get in touch with Ken to find out more about their environmental policy and discuss a little bit of his life and experience as one of Scotland's leading horticulturists. For Ken's background is indeed rooted in horticulture. The Coxes are a family of famous plant hunters and Ken is now a third generation rhododendron expert. He's written several books on roadies and other woodland plants, as well as some very useful guides on the best plants and gardens for Scotland. He's also an experienced lecturer and an advisor on woodland planting in particular. And if you want a flavour of his area of expertise, it's definitely worth paying a visit to Glendowick Gardens, which open annually to the public, usually during April and May, for Scotland's Garden Scheme. If you do get along there, you'll see an absolutely huge variety of rhododendrons, azaleas and some really excellent specimens of beautiful magnolia trees. And you'll enjoy a really lovely woodland walk around the grounds. It's a highly recommended spring day out. Now, Ken is not shy of expressing his opinions on some of the current issues of concern for the horticultural industry. And in fact, we jumped straight into our chat discussing some of the topics causing controversy amongst gardeners and nursery owners. Eco-gardening, it's not... It's 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 a sort of urban London thing to start with, and then it spreads around the country. So, for example, are people prepared to use glyphosate, mm-hmm. Roundup, or not? So that's a big issue. Mm-hmm. All the chemical companies are now producing Roundup-free weed killer, mm-hmm. um, so that some garden centres are going to stop mm-hmm. selling Roundup. Yeah. It seems to me that it's um, a bit of a red herring that particular Lynn. issue at the moment. Um, all chemicals are carcinogenic in some ways if you don't use them right and the, there's no doubt that people using uh, glyphosate mm-hmm. seven days a week as a, as a job without protective equipment are going to get ill which is what's mm-hmm. happened in America mm-hmm. but it's actually the, it's the safest weed killer ever invented in terms of it as soon as it hits the soil it neutralizes and so on so I mean I'm not suggesting for a minute that you drink it or, or inhale it or whatever but <laughs> as far as weed killers go Roundup is the safest one around so, um, I like that you are willing to um, speak out on these sorts of things and say something which maybe isn't um, in step with what a lot of other people are saying in the moment in the industry in yeah. terms of like that sort of thing. Let's well, leap into peat, for example. Yeah, well, mostly it's just ignorant rubbish. And, and as usual, people t- tend to think everything's black and white, mm-hmm. and it isn't. It's an incredibly nuanced subject. It's very complicated. and. The problem is that newspapers and journalists and whatever always want it to be a black and white issue. Yes. 
And peat is another issue where, um, you know, they said it's, it's a non-renewable resource. It's not. It renews itself as long as you keep it. In, in Scandinavia, they call it a, an eco... I mean, it's an e- ecological product. They grow it there. Yes. As well. um, so, uh, and, and the... So the, the, the real argument against the use of peat is because it's, it sequesters carbon. It, there's a lot of carbon locked up in it. But then so there is in soil. So every time you plough a field, let's carbon out. Yeah. So why is that different from, from, from using peat? So again, these things are, are, are just, they're very complicated and everybody wants a simple yes, no, black, white answer. I think it's interesting that the horticultural industry seems to take it upon itself almost to, um, is it maybe blaming itself for the, you know, uh, a peat reduction or whatever because... Um, it's only 2% of horticultural industry, I was interested to read, is maybe only responsible for, say, 2% of peat use yes, I in think the that's, UK. I that believe right? that's right, though it depends what you define as horticulture. Yeah. So, for example, it's used quite a lot in farming, mushrooms, things like that. Uh, in Ireland, there's quite still some peat power stations, I think. Um, my, I, I come to peat from a slightly different angle because I grow ericaceous plants. Yes. Ericaceous plants grow on peat. That's what they do. Heathers and rhododendrons um, and whatever. They grow on moorland in peat. That's what they're designed to do, etc. And the two things are kind of very closely related. So you can't entirely divorce rhododendrons from peat. Uh, my feeling is that peat's a waste of time to be used as a soil ameliorant and there's no reason, good reason for putting it on soil at all. Uh, you know, digging into your garden, there's absolutely no need for it. People even think it's a good mulch. It's absolutely useless. All it does is provide a seed bed for seed. So there are lots of things that you could really do without peat altogether. My feeling is that they should put a tax on it and just use it for propagation and container growing. And that would be really, in the scheme of things, a very small use of peat. It's about responsibly using uh, resources, isn't it? Rather well, you, than... And you can, t- you can use the tax system yeah. to make people change their behaviour in certain ways. So if, if peat compost is very expensive, but it's only people just use it for sowing seeds, for example, which is what it's really good for, then it's not, you know, that seems to be a sensible way forward. And then ask the, the, the people who make bags of compost to say, right, you know, if it's for digging into your borders and things like that, then don't put any peat in it. You don't need yeah. it. Yeah. We'll come back to rhododendrons in a minute, but I want to speak a bit more about the environmental issues because I noticed that you'd updated your policy for the garden centre here, Glendowick for this year. You've obviously had one in place for a while, yeah. I guess. Um, but uh, there's some new things in there and I thought that was really interesting. And you're keen to um, to be a leader, I guess, in Scotland for some of these issues, which is uh, uh, good to see. Yeah, yes. Um, it's, um, it's something my wife is particularly keen on and she's mm-hmm. been looking around to see what sort of things that we can do. Um, I mean, actually, the, 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 I mean, it's been happening over... We've been, we've been sort of working on this for years. Um, and all the new the new building is so super insulated that although we've got lots of heating in it, we hardly ever need to use it. And all the heating is upgraded to air source heat pumps, for example. So, um, but the, the latest things we've done is well, we put an enormous solar array on the roof. Yeah, um, and it's it's actually supposed to be enough to generate all the electricity that we need during the year. The problem is that. When it's sunny, we get too much electricity, and when it's dark or in the winter, we don't get enough. But in theory, uh, we can generate almost enough electricity to be self-sufficient, but we need battery storage. And so the next stage is we're going to... It looks like we're going to set up an experimental battery storage system. Um, 
in the next couple of years, which means that we can store the power and then when, when it's not when it's dark or whatever and we need power, we can use it. That's the theory, yeah. Um, so that's the next stage okay. of that. And you're looking into things like uh, electric car charging? Yeah, electric car charging is about to go in. Yeah. That's one of the ways we can use the gener- electricity generated from the solar panels ah. is for electric charging. Um, so that it's hopefully by the end of the year we'll have some electric charging in. It's going to be, if the government's target of 2030 is going to be met by having electric cars, then pretty much every parking space in every supermarket and, every, and you know, outside everyone's house is going to have an electric charge point. And at the moment, we don't have the capacity to generate the electricity to do that. Yeah. So, and it takes at least 10 years to build electricity. So I, it's like one of these things where they've set this target, but no one's actually doing anything about meeting it at the moment. So um, it, it's um, interesting. I think yeah. Brexit, everyone's taken their eye off the ball. <laughs> no, no, nothing's happening in government for years and years and years and years because they're just arguing about Brexit. Oh, let's not get started on that particular yeah. <laughs> bugbear. But, um, uh, another hot topic at the moment as well in this industry is uh, plastic pots. And um, I see, I think there's beginning to move towards these taupe-coloured yes. pots. So, the, t- to some extent, the colour of the pots is irrelevant. The interesting thing was that the industry found out that the electronic readers that sort rubbish cannot detect matte black plastic and they basically just let it go through. They don't. And these readers, in order to know that the thing has got to grab the pot and take it out and put it into the recycling, for some reason, it can't recognise black pots. You would think the technology could be programmed to recognise black pots, but they assured, they assured the industry that they couldn't. What they told the industry was, you can put any other colour of pot but not black. And the industry's always had black pots. And actually, black pots are quite a good thing in many ways because when you recycle and melt down plastic, black is a good colour because whatever colour is involved in the recycling, you can turn it into black. So in some ways, it's a pity because black is actually a good colour. So the horticultural industry, at the H, the Horticultural Trades Association, got together with all the major nurseries in England particularly and basically got them to agree, let's, in order to make this work, if we have one colour of pot, we can make it as cheap the black ones and they went for taupe I have no idea how they came to that conclusion a lot of people think it's a bit of an odd colour but anyway it does mean so if it's in one of those taupe pots do, I don't know if you people even know what colour taupe is can you describe well, it? I do but it's just sort of a kind of a beigey off whitey kind of it's a bit of an odd colour beigey brown really yeah, isn't it beigey, yes okay so colour. anyway if you see a pot in that colour of pot then in theory it can be recycled now the next problem is that we'll so over the next two years you'll see most of the black pots changing over to, to talk pots. At the moment, the councils aren't recycling them. However, um, there's a big pilot project going on in <coughs> Warwickshire and Worcestershire at the moment um, because these talk pots are worth a lot of money to recyclers. So uh, once the once there's enough volume going through, then um, the recyclers will say to the councils, yeah, we will buy these pots off you, and then the councils will do it. So it'll probably, again, take a couple of years before that happens. The other objection the councils had was they don't want dirty pots, because they want soil on them. So it's going to be a bit like the councils ask you, you know, to wash out your bottles and your plastic before you put it in recycling. A lot of people don't. Um, so that's another issue because they don't really want soil going into the plastic recycling and that's going to be a bit of an issue. So, um, But anyway, in theory, um, 
that's going to be the case. The other thing that we may end up doing is just asking people to bring back, as an alternative, bring back the talk pots mm. and we will clean them and reuse them in the nursery and that way they don't have to be melted down. And so in yeah. terms of the environment, that's probably a better mm. outcome. And a saving for a nursery, for example? Yes. I mean, we've not been able to do this up to now because there are too many... The pots, like a two-litre pot, it, they're all different sizes. Some are wider, and they don't stack properly, and they're all different. So that's not much good for us in terms of having, like, everything it's like mix, mix and match. Yeah. What I'm hoping with the talk pots is they'll be fairly standard, and yeah. all the two-litre talk pots will be pretty much the same. I'm hoping, and therefore we can reuse them. But because if they all end up being different sizes again, then um, we're pretty doomed. Yeah. And that really would have been a better option, is to yeah. re- reuse rather than have to melt down. I mean, I guess it makes sense because, um, you know, the whole ethos of gardening is, you know, the planet it's, and the earth. It's good and for you and it it's is, good for yeah. the environment and exactly. so on. So, I think so it, it makes sense to make yes. moves and changes in a way that will benefit it does. Um, everyone. So, yeah. It does make sense to do that. Let's talk about Scottish plants a bit more. Um, another thing that I think was really interesting that you sort of, um, uh, seemed to be uniquely doing, maybe you're not uniquely doing, but it seems to me you might be, uh, is sort of uh, championing Scottish plants and you've developed a sort of a list, um, well you have a sort of a list of a hundred I know that you've produced a leaflet for here which are great ornamental plants for Scotland. You've also got this kind of system of awards, um, the Scottish Garden Plant Awards, which is about, I guess basically a list of the most viable plants for north of the border, for Scotland and the north of England. How did that all come about? Well, when... Um Raoul Curtis Machin and I were writing garden, the book Garden Plants for Scotland, which is probably about 10 years ago now, the first edition of that. Um, we were looking at the Royal Horticultural Society has an award called the AGM, the Award of Garden Merit. And we were going to use that in the book, and it's supposed to be really good plants, etc. And then we looked at this, and we realised that a lot of the plants that were getting awards of garden merit were pretty useless in Scotland. So and it's the, this is an award that's really based in Wisley in Surrey. And so there were a lot of plants on that that we couldn't possibly advise people to use in Scotland. So we just thought, well, maybe it'd be interesting. So we, we, did, we sent out surveys to National Trust gardeners, Carol Baxter, Jim McCall, all these people, everybody uh, all over the place. And, and, and uh, we sent them a long list of plants and got them to basically select what they thought the best doers, the best apples, the best potentillas, whatever it was. Um, and so we came up with a list of, I think, I can't remember, several hundred sort of tried and tested plants for Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the book, it's on the, the Cali, the Royal Caledonian Horticultural Society website. The industry hasn't really taken to it much because very little, most of the plants that are sold, bought and sold in the Scottish garden centres probably come up from England. Most of the big nurseries are down there and they're not going to put Scottish labelling on things. So the lists are there. They're also in the book garden plants for Scotland and then we sort of condensed that down to this leaflet called the 100 best plants for Scotland because we found a lot of people especially if you're a beginner go into a garden center and you and you see these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plants and you think my goodness where do I start so this is just a list of things like the five best apple trees or the seven best roses and whatever and at least you know that you'll have a good chance of of, of doing well and, and when people start out gardening they need to succeed mm-hmm. otherwise they'll give up it's particularly important with fruit and veg growing I think um, that um, 
you know, when you start trying to grow fruit and veg, you want to grow things like potatoes that are easy and not basil, which is nearly impossible. So it's about expectations. And if you do something and you follow the instructions and it works and you get your your fruit and your veg, then you strawberries, things like that. So it's also I, I in the fruit and vegetable book, I have a list of you know, if you're starting out, try these first, yeah. and don't try and grow celeriac because I have no idea how to get celeriac. To, we tried everything and we couldn't get anything more than a, a tennis ball. And why would you want to eat it anyway? Let's oh, I quite like it. Oh, do you? Um, <laughs> Andrew Fairley, uh, he, who died recently, who runs the restaurant at, at Glen Eagles, he has a, or had a, I think it's still going, a secret veg garden in a, in a Persia wall garden, but I'm not allowed to tell you where it is. I mean, I was threatened with all sorts of things by his that. people if I told anyone where it was and I said and I you know it was it was quite interesting I don't think it had anything to do with Andrew I think his people are just a bit you know yeah. whatever and uh, anyway they had really good celeriac but unfortunately when I was there the gardener who was responsible for celeriac wasn't there so I couldn't say well, how do you do this but it's a really it was a really impressive setup it was really good well, I love the list. I think it's really useful. Um, so even if nurseries aren't embracing it, I think yeah, it's really good for gardeners to be able to check. It's out there. I mean, it's it. there. It's available. Yeah. It's online, yeah. and and so yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it sort of condenses down the uh, absolute enormous like range of plants you could potentially put in your garden. It is, by definition, quite an old-fashioned list mm. because the newer plants mm. people didn't know well enough. So there are a few things that I'd say probably should be on the list, but the people that I was surveying said, oh, I haven't tried geranium rosane yet. I don't know yeah, how good it is yeah, or whatever. So yeah. I, I think actually geranium rosane is it on the list. Be on there. But um, yeah, so there are new plants that we know are, are pretty good. And yeah. the, actually the same thing applies to the RHS Award of Garden Merit. I'm on their committees for, for rhododendrons and azaleas. We're about to start on evergreen azaleas mm-hmm. uh, next year. And uh, it's kind of the same problem. Quite a lot of the new ones, people just say, oh, I haven't grown that yet. Yeah. And so, you know, if not enough people vote for it, it's yeah. not going to get one. So rhododendrons and azaleas then. Does anyone know more about rhododendrons than you? <laughs> Possibly not. Uh, maybe my dad. <laughs> um, I, I'd say I'm... Yeah, I'd say I can give most people a run for their money. Yeah. Be your special subject of mastermind. I would never dare to do that in case in case <laughs> they ask okay. me. It's a, it's a rather large subject because yeah. there are 900 species and about 35,000 hybrids. So uh, somebody doing research on mastermind, I could get naught out of 20 if they if they asked. You know, I, I'm not sure I would. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be. Yeah, I don't know what I'd do, but. I, <laughs> Well, why rhododendrons, though? I mean, you've obviously you have the legacy of the family yeah, interest in them. That's the but, reason, um, really. It's my grandfather started yeah. them, and my father. But presumably, you wouldn't still grow them if you didn't like them. Yes, yeah, so, no, no, I, I do like them, yeah. and, and um, I don't know. Once, once you've got a speciality, yeah. um, it's like I'm a very, very big fish in a very, very small pond. So I'm, I'm a, you know, so in terms of the world of rhododendrons, it doesn't really matter where you go on the planet. Uh, we're quite well known, so it's quite nice to just be at the top of your field, even if it is as, as obscure as rhododendrons. And, and, it, and it, it, it gets me, it's my passport to, I mean, I get invited all over the world to yeah. do things with rhododendrons. It's, 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 a, it's a nice thing to have. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And you have been all over the world looking for rhododendrons. I, I have, I have, yes. That, that I, I'm not doing that anymore, but, but yes, uh, yeah. for, when I was younger, I used, I used to go every year. And, was that something that was quite, that was, was that an amazing experience to do something I, like that? Well, I was really lucky to be able to get into Southeast Tibet. I was 
led the first expedition into southeast Tibet um, since sort of Chinese takeover, I suppose. Several other expeditions had tried to get in there, and a couple had actually gone, and then when they got there, they were told they couldn't do anything, you know, whatever. So, and, um, and so that's really where, it, where it, uh, it really took off. I'd been in China before, but to places that other people had been before. And, and then I went into northeast India and, and explored places that no botanist has ever been looking in, and we found new species of plants there and so on. So that was really lucky. It was just good timing to be able to do so that was exploration primarily plus plant hunting um, I'm not so interested in going to a mountain that everyone else has been to I mean I would like to do it but it's it's you get spoiled if you get to do new if you get to go to new places uh, then it, it, it obviously plant hunting is something that's been in your family for years for generations now isn't yeah it? my grandfather went first yeah. in 1919 um, he was his family when Duke business in Dundee and my grandfather absolutely had definitely didn't want to go into the Duke business. He was really a writer. He was working in London as a writer. And he met Reginald Farrow, who was the most famous plant hunter of that era and garden writer. Uh, and Farrow invited him to go to Burma. And my grandfather thought, this is a really good way of avoiding, in 1918, 1919, um, after the First World War, um, of basically going back to Dundee and, and working in the Duke business. And, and he managed to avoid it yeah. entirely. <laughs> So that's so that's how we got into plant hunting, yeah. and then my father wanted to go in the sixties, um, but China was shut at that time. You, there wasn't really very many places you could go, so he went into northeast India in 1965, I think it was, with Sir Peter Hutchinson, uh, and the two of them carried on plant hunting pretty much throughout their lives. I don't know how many expeditions they did, at least twenty anyway. And now today, you guys are still. Breeding, yes, we're plants. still hybridising new ones. Uh, the, the thing that we're concentrating on at the moment is foliage. Red foliage, yellow foliage, blue foliage. And I've been asked to do a garden at Hampton Court Flower Show in London next July. Uh, so the application for that is in and, and I'm expecting to get the confirmation in the next few days. And, and then so that, and it's just rhododendrons and foliage, most of which we've either bred or selected. Uh, and the three with red leaves are the ones that are creating the most stir. One of them, we sold, I think, 20,000 of them were sold in Europe this year. So I've just been getting the royalties. We get <laughs> we get a little royalty on each one. So I've just sent in the invoice for that. So um, so that's that's quite that's quite interesting. And that's and that's a new that's a new plant, is it? Well, there are two that have been out for 10 years or so now oh, okay. called called Ever Red, which is like a cotinus purple leaf thing and and uh, wine and roses which has a pink flower and a red leaf underside and the new one is called wonder red and we launched it at a garden in scotland this year uh, we had about 30 plants and they went pretty fast which has got dark red flowers and dark red foliage and a red underside and it's hardier than ever red so the problem with ever red is it's not really hardy enough for europe and so they're really keen to get one with red leaves that they can sell in Germany and Poland and Holland and so on. So okay. that's what's going to happen with Wonder Red. Fantastic. So I've got some rhododendrons in my garden. Just uh, the, the previous owners, I think, planted them. And I kind of leave them to do their own things. So I was thinking, I've got the opportunity to ask, what is the best thing I can do for my rhododendrons? Because I really just let them into their own device. Yeah, if they're green and flowering, yeah. there's absolutely nothing you need to do to them. That's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the good news. Because if they're happy, there's no need to do anything to them. If they get too big, most of them can be cut back. Okay. And you might lose the flowers for a couple of years, but you can 
Um, and the only ones that can't be cut back are the ones with smooth, peeling bark. For some reason, they do not regenerate. But there's very few of them. Most of the ones that you're likely to have in the garden can be pruned. Um, and unless the, as long as the plant's healthy, it will grow again. Um, I do quite often get asked if people can prune plants that are looking sick and thin and, and unhappy and the reason it's probably something that's gone wrong in the soil like drainage isn't good enough or tree root competition and if you cut them back it's probably going to be the end of it because they're not they haven't got enough energy in the first place uh, but generally it's not well known that, that um, uh, camellias magnolias rhododendrons all the big woodland garden things that get enormous they can all be cut back okay. and they will regenerate and people just have to have the courage to do it, to do it. and it's not just uh, I mean I, I advise the National Trust the National Trust for Scotland and very often um, they're incredibly reluctant to do it uh, but every time I advise them to do it I do before and after photos and every time we get onto this subject, I basically have to bring out the photos and say, here's what we had, here's what we did, and three years later, look. Yeah. And they go, oh, right, okay, fine. And, I believe you now. Uh, I believe you now, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yeah. so um, it's, it, you just have to sort of um, show the evidence and, right. and do it. Okay. Right, that's good advice, so I'll just leave it be then. <laughs> I'll leave them all be until... If they get, until they get too big. Yeah. Once they block the path or, or block yeah. the windows or whatever else it is, then yeah. you can cut them back. Perfect. So what's next then for yourself or Glendora? You've already touched on um, Hampton Court next year. Is there anything else in the pipes in the pipeline that's happening for you guys? Uh, You've yeah. got a new gin. I was going to ask. Yes, we do. Yes, gin. for our hundredth anniversary, we well we were. I think I can't remember how it happened. I think uh, Wendy, the food hall manager, was talking to a company in Dundee who were actually in an old jute mill, mm. and they said you know, we could do a bespoke gin for Glendoic. And we thought, jute, Glendoic, jute mill, it's actually in Lockheed. I think it's, you know, in where the Cox factory was. So we just thought this was a nice idea to do a gin. So we've got a label design with Cox's Lum, which was, the you know, in Dundee on it. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's out for, basically, this autumn and for Christmas this year. And it's so far so good. I think Wendy's got a limited edition with some gold flakes in it. Uh, which she's trying to get me to drink and I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> I'm going to have to put that on my Christmas list, I think. I like a gin. <laughs> Do you think the Scottish horticulture industry is um, healthy, thriving? Is it, is it, as, you know, um, is it leading the way on things the way it should be? The, hort- the Scottish horticultural industry, in terms of garden centres and uh, specialist nurseries, is doing okay. Mm. The wholesale trade was destroyed by Dobby's because when Dobby's was bought by Tesco's and became bigger and bigger, they basically stopped buying local plants and, and, and everything. They had to, you had to supply all the Dobby's naturally, etc., etc. So quite a lot of nurseries that were growing alpines you know, and things like that, they just basically went to the wall because there just wasn't enough demand for them. So, um, and I don't think that will come back. Um, Highland Heathers, another one up in, in Argyle that used to supply all over the country. So it's, it's a shame, really, that that, that happened. Um, and because the growing season is longer down south, in some ways it makes sense to um, grow things down there because they grow quicker, etc., etc. But it's a shame because then they have to be transported up to Scotland. We have a policy of buying locally where we can. We have the bedding nursery... Um, Gary Young's Bedding Nursery is in, in uh, the Grange, which is about two miles from here. Uh, and so if we run out of bedding on Monday morning, we can drive over and get some more. So that's great. So we can't get close than that. So we're, yeah. 
and we have alpines that come from Inverness and we grow we have two nurseries here with Glendoyt one and my cousin Peter Milne so we grow a lot of stuff on site um, but yes the, so the Scottish horticulture industry I would say it's a mixed pic- picture but quite a lot of nurseries um, have given up there are new ones starting so you know it's always going to change I think it's important to for people I think people may be coming into gardening here and um, they're new to it maybe don't they, they make a beeline for donkeys or whatever or yeah. for a larger a larger garden centre but I think it, it maybe they need that little reminder that there are so many independent nurseries and garden centres which um, are, are really worth looking at because what they grow they grow on site or they source locally and that those are the plants that are going to succeed in your well garden. that's true and also you get more interesting plants yeah. because uh, the, the, the big nursery chains now are essentially growing all the easiest to grow stuff yeah. it's all they're interested in is can I fill this pot as quickly as possible um, there are one of the things quite interesting you can't buy tall perennials anymore from in garden centres because they don't look very good in the pot most people will buy things in flower and a tall perennial looks ridiculous in a pot because it's just a long stick with a flower on the top and people yeah. don't want to buy that so now they've given up right so if you want tall perennials for the back of your border you, you'll probably have to go to a specialist to get them because yeah. you're not going to get them it's, it's just really sad really um, it is a problem that people are wanting to do all their gardening in May and June because it's getting drier and hotter and that's really, we, the last couple of years we've had very hot, dry periods at the end of May, beginning of June, which is just when people are pulling all their plants in because they buy them in May. What people used to do is plant things in September, October, February, March, which are really much better pl- times of year to plant plants because they can get in they get their roots growing before yeah. you know whatever I'm not sure those days will ever come back because people like to, but if you if you're serious about gardening and rather than uh, um, and, and you want to plant a new border or whatever I really do think people should do it in the, uh, September's brilliant this is fantastic weather yeah. for planting now it's dry it's, it's warm etc um, uh, and, and so this is a good time things like trees fruit bushes that's the sort of thing you should be planting now um, we don't we try not to stock trees too much in the summer because really that's the, the worst thing is to, to yeah, come, come in in July and say <laughs> I'm going to plant a tree and then I'm going to go on holiday for two weeks and when I come back it's going to be crisped up and um, I, I, I yeah so it's, it's that, that's that's a big change that, that's happening that, that horticulture is becoming more and more impulse led and if you can resist buying the plant in flower and maybe think, when would be the best time for this plant? I'll buy it when it's dormant, when it hasn't started growing. Yeah. Buying a rose in flower, nobody ever used to do that. That's a new thing. Yeah, but um, it's so tempting when it's in It's flower. very tempting, yeah. and you can choose the colour you like, and yeah. I quite understand yeah. why people do that. But if I was really planting a rose garden, I wouldn't go and plant them all in July. It's fine if you just want to pick a rose that you like, but it's probably yeah. better to do it in Get it when it's a March stick and, it looks and, like. and, and April in the stick. I mean, yeah. there are nice pictures, labels, yeah. and you, know, yeah. you can see what it's going to look like. You can Google you it. You can Google it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, would, my, that, that would be, the, if, if I was going to sort of change Scottish gardening habits, I would say, you know, go to your garden centres, local garden centres now, if you want to plant trees get them in there that's the time to do it
thanks to Ken Cox for taking the time to chat with me for this podcast episode. Whether you agree or disagree with him on some of the issues we discussed, I hope you will agree it's worth taking the time to think about them and to debate the issues at hand and seek out the best solutions for some of these tricky problems we all face. There's an utter wealth of advice on rhododendrons, azaleas, woodland plants and other planting online at the Glendowick Garden Centre website, including videos and growing guides, and I do encourage you to check it out. And it's worth looking at Ken's books and the list of Scottish Garden Plant Awards, as it's a really useful shortlist of some of the most reliable plants you could choose for your garden in Scotland. I'll put links to all of these in the show notes for this episode, along with all the ways you can get in touch with the podcast, including, and this is new for season two, it's the Scottish Garden Newsletter. This is brand new. There have only been two sent out so far and it will hopefully be a regular mail out to highlight some of the new and interesting things in Scottish gardening which have come to my attention each month and also to let you know when there's a new podcast episode available. I might also use it to share some other fun stuff like other podcasts I enjoy or snippets of interesting information and perhaps even pictures of my chickens, that sort of thing. So that's episode one of season two, Done and Dusted. Thanks for listening and I hope to see you back again here next month for the next Scottish Garden podcast. Until then, be happy and well in your garden. Goodbye.